take the mark. Oh, he's a light, Gary Ablett. Look at this. Here is the magician at work. He shoots towards goal. What more can you say? Hargraves kicks inside the 50. Bounces in front of Burns. Burns magnificently. This deserves a goal. And he's got it. What a classic. Inboard, awkward kick by Colbert. Half, half, ball, 50-50. Riccardi, brilliant. What a goal this will be. Matching. free of the tackle and Roof rolls it along the line. Oh. That is amazing. After in comes Doggan once again. Doggan streaks goalwards, he kicks. He's got a through. Steve Johnson, another one who the Cats will be hoping gets up today. Ooh, and again there's a turnover and Ablett, the little genius, drives it home. It's the Cat's Whiskers. Hello and welcome to the Cat's Whiskers for another week. I'm Wes Cussworth. Thanks for tuning in, whether you're hearing us on Sport FM 91.3 in Perth or through any of a range of podcast platforms. Let's meet this week's panel, beginning with Mark Browning and a 19-point capitulation to GWS, and that hurt, Mark. Yes, Wes. Hello, Wes, and hello, everyone else. Uh, Very disappointing. We can just hope that uh, Geelong have brought their normal qualifying final disaster forward a few weeks, and that's the last bad game we'll see from them this season. Anthony would know if we lose a final, we won't win the premiership. We haven't done that since 1931. Um, But that list that you read out of about seven or eight promising players who've progressed this season, put it back in the drawer now, Wes. Get it out at the end of the season and, and go down that list and see whether they get a tick or a cross to see if they actually have improved because a lot of them took a bit of a backward step in terms of form last Friday night. Anthony Petkovic, welcome to you. What disappointed you most in the loss to GWS? Uh, three things, Wes. I'm just disappointed. I'm not disappointed at losing. I think that all can always happen. Any team in this competition can beat any other team on any given day. But to fall 38 points behind, as they did in the third quarter, that is a real warning sign to me. The second thing that disappointed me was Asaba Radagalia. Um, his lack of footy smarts is starting to really worry me and at times can hurt Geelong. Um, if he's not flying competitively for marks and he was completely, his timing was completely off. He's got to do one of two things. He's either got to wedge himself between Tom Hawkins and Tom Hawkins' opponent, or he's got to make himself a viable target to drag another defender away from the contest. And on Friday night, he was lost. He was doing neither, which means he's of absolutely no value to the team. And the third thing that disappointed me, and I don't want to bag Tom Hawkins, but Tom, you're a much better player when you move towards the person with the ball. You run towards the kicker. This WrestleMania stuff has got to stop. You have got to be on the move. 
Three times in the last quarter, Geelong players kicked the ball to where you should have been. But you were too busy wrestling and stuffing around with the easy one over the back. Move towards the man with the ball, please. The great thing about Tom Hawkins, though, he usually follows a poor performance with a really good one. And we'll be hoping that's the case this weekend. Yes, very true. Uh, Mark Brunger is the third member of the panel. And Mark, I know that you're particularly interested in the situation with Toby Green. He's two weeks downgraded to one week. He's he treated differently. And for the ma- that matter, is Joel Selwood treated differently? Because my social media feed is suggesting from non-Geelong supporting friends, <laughs> I might add, that he is untouchable. Well, uh, thank you, Wes. Uh, good evening to you. Good evening to our panel and the listeners. And uh, thank you for a uh, Dorothy Dixer first up. Uh, <laughs> um, for, from my perspective, I think probably the story with Toby Green is that he's a footballer that I'd really like to like because he's got so many great qualities as a footballer. He never gives up. He's dangerous around goals. He's always in the in the contest to win. But he just has these moments of brain fades where... I think he takes leave of his senses for for a few moments and does something quite silly in the heat of the game. I think Toby's had enough incidents now so that we can say that they're not treating him any differently. They're assessing him for what he's actually doing. Uh, And regardless of whether, you know, uh, Patrick Dangerfield was slipping or, or whatever the case may be, he still elbowed him in the throat, which is still considered to be part of the head. Uh, and certainly uh, in this day and age where the AFL uh, is putting such, uh, such importance around the head, uh, I think it's uh, probably fitting that, that he did at least get a week. I would, however, say that um, Michael Christian and the, the match review panel need to have a, a session with the mirrors because I think that the AFL uh, match review panel this year and even the tribunal have been severely inconsistent with their views and judgments on incidents in football. David King is going to have an aneurysm very, very soon on Fox footy with the way that the tribunal is going this year. And, And I share his concern because there's no consistency in what their decisions are. They are letting things go that should not be let go. And in the case of Joel Selwood, I must admit that when I saw that incident on Friday night, I turned to the, um, to the people I was, I was with and I said, he's going to be in trouble. Uh, so I thought Joel was incredibly lucky to get off without a week. Um, Joel plays on the edge and sometimes he just, oversteps the edge by a toenail. Uh, I just hope that one of those toenail steps doesn't cost him the chance to lift a Premiership Cup for Geelong in a few weeks' time. Mm, Yeah, good point. Well, let's continue with our program. Coming up is our very special guest of this week, a local product here in Geelong who went on to enjoy five years at Caninia Park. I speak of dashing halfback and wingman Harvey Davis. Welcome back to the Cats Whiskers. Harvey Davis is our guest this week, a man who played 44 games in the hoops over a five-year period from 1973 to 1977. Recruited from local league club Newtown and Chewell, Harvey joined Geelong in the great Graham Polly Farmer's first season as coach of the Cats. 
With Polly moving on after three years at the helm, Harvey enjoyed his most productive season in 1976 with 18 games under the auspices of first-year coach Rodney Olsen. Upon departing Kidinia Park, he returned to Newtown and Chewell, playing a key role in the club's 1978 premiership success. Harvey, welcome to the Cats Whiskers. Thanks, Wiz. Great to be here. It's uh, great to have the opportunity to do a bit of reminiscing. Harvey, speaking of reminiscing, tell us about your junior football days in particular and, and how you caught the attention of the, of the Cats at the time. Um, I, I played all my junior footy at uh, the Newtown Footy Club, so I just lived around the corner. In fact, um, I lived in a street that was equally distant between Newtown and St Peter's back in the good old days when St Peter's played up in uh, Hearn Hill there. And for whatever reason, uh, my elder brother uh, floated into Newtown, so I went there. So I played all my juniors there. Um, probably uh, the thing I played as it was in the in the seniors at Newtown as a as a uh, 16-year-old, my first game. And then when I was 17, I played just about the whole year. And surprisingly, um, I used to play centre forward. And, uh, and, and my signature was the torpedo, the big torpedo goals. Yeah, so, so that's, I guess that's what sort of attracted them. So Harvey, who, who got you down at Geelong? What was the pathway for you? Um, and, you know, what did you find about the changes in standard from, especially for us guys that pay, play just local footy, how big a leap is it from GFL to AFL? Yeah. Look, as, as you know, when you play local footy, it's, you know, you turn up at the end of January and run a few laps and get hot and sweaty a few times and then you pull on the boots and play the practice games early. Um, the, the first year down there, in, in the good old days, you used to get a letter in the mail. So just got a letter in the mail to say I was invited down to training. So uh, I did a bit of running before I went down there, but uh, nothing prepared me for what happened to us next because uh, my first year was actually under Bill McMaster. And uh, they used to pile us on buses and take us down to the Buddy Beach. And we used to run through the sand hills. And uh, I'm here to tell you that that was just a bit more than I ever did at Newtown, I can assure you. So um, it, it was a bit of a rude awakening. Um, and, and I have to say that um, when, when Polly came along the, the next year, I was only one year under Bill, Polly came along and uh, Polly had this idea, you had to run five miles every day. He said, every day of your life, you have to run five miles. So everybody was saying, Polly, five miles? My God, what are you five miles no one's ever run five miles so uh, and that's how it started he he spent a lot of time getting us to a, a basic level of fitness that uh, that we, none of us had ever had before it was it was very amateurish um, when i first arrived at Geelong. well harvey i think i've got a lot of catching up to do if there's uh, five kilometers to run every five miles to run every day i'm a long way behind um but I'm uh, just wondering, uh, we've talked to a, a few uh, former players who uh, who were there under under the Polly's tutelage, and uh, they've all sort of given the indication that that Polly was was sort of years ahead of his time in the way he thought about football. Was that your your takeaway from that? Yeah, Polly Polly was obviously being a gifted player. He just had an understanding of the game that that was just inherent in him. He just he just understood how the game. Worked flowed um it, he was he could be really tough 
for for people who who he can see had raw talent but didn't apply themselves so running the five miles a day all that sort of thing um he could be really tough but he was he was uh he was a football genius i mean i grew up going and watching Polly farmer play down at uh, cadinia park in the good old days and um i have to tell you <laughs> if you went Polly had a tire service down in geelong so uh, if you ever went to see Polly during the day you just spent the whole day handballing the ball through car windows while you were talking to him. That was that was the whole deal. You just go there, you come back, your, your hand would be red from, you know, 150 handballs while you were uh, yakking to him. So it, he was he was just fanatical about all of those things. He just wanted things done properly, and uh, and that's that that was the man. That's why he was such a great player. Well, Harvey, one of your former teammates, Michael Turner, had a reputation for his electrifying runs along the wing at Cudinia Park. But I have it on good authority from one of your former Newtown and Jewel Premiership teammates that you were actually quicker than Michael Turner. Now, can you give us any uh, further detail on that one and whether or not that might be an accurate assessment? Um, well, it's interesting. I'm not sure in the good old days we've raced each other in, in those terms, but um, I, I know Turkey would would be very um, he'd be prepared to argue the case that he was faster than me, but I, I would like to say that I I was at least as quick as him and and perhaps a little more. Yep. Very good. Harvey, tell us about your first game. I, I'm pretty sure it was 1973 against the Bulldogs at Cadinia Park. You weren't a huge goal kicker in your league career, but you, you kicked the goal on debut. What's your memories about that particular day? Memory? Um, waking up Saturday morning, having barely slept at all on Friday night was the first thing, because as a kid you grew up you know, thinking about playing AFL footy and all that sort of thing, and suddenly you were there. Um, and I was picked as a rover. I'd never played Rover. I'd played <laughs> lots of positions in my life, but I'd never played as Rover. And uh, it was it was quite a warm day. And um, I remember Bluey Hampshire. We, I, I, in the centre with Bluey. I, I was number 21. Bluey is number 22. So I knew Bluey really well. He was a fantastic bloke. And um, Bluey got a hold of me. We're out in the centre square and he, he comes up and he says, you stand there and don't move. I'll hit the ball to you. You get it and kick it. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. I just had no idea. I didn't. I, it was it was unbelievable. And and I must admit, I I kicked that goal. And by the time I got back to the centre, I was thinking, my God, I need to put my hand up and go and stand in the forward pocket for about fifteen minutes to get my breath back. The uh, the step up from the seconds to the seniors was was absolutely enormous. And the physical, it was, it was quite a warm day, so it was. It was really hard going. So yeah, I didn't do much on the Saturday night after my first game. I had a couple of drinks and then went and folded back into bed. And I woke up the next day and I thought, my God, I've been hit by a truck. Um, so you're back to training and it takes about half an hour or three quarters of an hour to sort of feel okay, like you you know you're ready to go again. But my goodness, it was a it was a it was a real eye opener that first game. Harvey, the early 70s weren't the most uh, illustrious time in the history of the Geelong Football Club. Um, but 1976, um, Rod Olsen came in. You um, played most of the season. There were finals. It was really, uh, almost for that era, a breakthrough season and took everyone in following Geelong a pleasant surprise. What were the changes? What happened? And 
did the team just mature age-wise or was Olsen's approach different to Polly and people responded to it? What, what, what? I think, as I said to you before, Polly, Polly got us fit. He, he got us fit. Rod came in and finished the job off. We, we, you know, we used to think we used to train hard under Polly, but my goodness, under, under Rod, though, there were some massive sessions and it was always running and weights all the time, weights all the time. So, um, yeah, we, so Rod came in and, and sort of pushed us that extra bit. And then I think when you look back, there were guys like Mickey Turner, um, Scratch Neil, um, younger guys that, that suddenly improved and stepped up. And then when you added that to Bruce and Ian Nan Curvis and, you know, um, Sam was still going around, you know, Bluey was still there, Paul Sarah was there. You had this this hardcore of reasonably well experienced players, and when these young legs came in, um, and and I guess I'm I was part of that. I, I spent half my life tackling, you know, because you you were quite quick enough to get from one spot to the other. But it was that pressure that the young legs brought to to bear that gave us a chance. And of course, Larry Donahue kicked uh, 105 goals, I think, um, in that year. And Larry's ability to kick the ball um, once you gave it to him. Actually, I've never actually looked to see um, his goals to point ratio that year, but he kicked some sensational goals in that year. So all the all the close games, we just managed to get get that little bit out of ourselves to to get there. So it was it was a great time. It was a fantastic feeling. And that, and that great finals win out at Waverley against the Bulldogs coming from behind. Yes, yeah, that was a that was a, a big day. It's a very that was a very big ground, and everybody had had it. It was quite a warm day as well. And uh, <laughs> uh, I remember we I think we only won it by three points or something, less than a kick. And uh, when the siren went, the ball was going into our back line, and it was on the other side of the oval to me. And I was trying like I could to run down to get into the back line. I thought, there's no hope I'm going to get there before that ball does. It, it was uh, it was travelling a bit quicker and the siren went. And I thought, my goodness, thank goodness for that. So we just fell over the line in that game. Then we went off to um, the MCG the next week and, and played North Melbourne in appalling conditions. It was just rained and it was wet. We were a skilled, quick side and... Uh, and, and we fell prey to them, which was a real shame. You know, if we had a, had a reasonable day, we might have had a different result. Oh, I think I've just heard history created there, Harvey. Uh, blazing sunshine at Waverley and rain at the MCG. <laughs> it was normally the other way around. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah I, I, I agree with you. I think Waverley was the coldest place on earth. Yes, there's no question about that. Um, you you spoke about uh, you know being a young fella and and you know being hit like a truck uh, after your, your first game and um, you know uh, I just look at the the two teams that were running around for Geelong and Footscray on that particular day and and even you know North Melbourne Hawthorne Carlton back in those days and there was some some of the greats of the game were were playing at that time did, did Harvey Davis ever had to have to stop himself and think. Uh, gee, what's this all about? I'm playing against guys that I've seen play for years on the TV and, and maybe looked up to. Yeah, look, absolutely. When, when you first go out, it, it's amazing that some guys don't see those things and don't even think about them. So a guy like Mickey Turner, he was just going to be the best player that he could ever be. And he, I'm sure he, he'd look at some of those players and go, I'm going to tell you. Um, 
there were other guys who were who were like Mick Woolnow, just a really hard running, hard player, and it, he was going to get there through sheer effort. So there were plenty of those players. But you're right. You you look around uh, playing Richmond. You know, I, I've played in the back pocket a few times, and you're playing on Kevin Bartlett, uh, you, and you go, hmm. and and Bond. Um, I played the first time I ever played in the back pocket was actually out at Waverley against Hawthorne, and it was just the third quarter had just started. I was cramping in the calf muscle. I couldn't get rid of the bloody cramp. And um, John Brown, who was a runner, he came out and he says. I've got an assignment for you. Come with me. And off we go. We start jogging down the ground. I thought, where the hell are we going? He says, you're playing on Lee Matthews. Oh. Keep him quiet. <laughs> I thought, yeah, give me some gaffer tape, would you? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, he, uh, that, was, that was my first time down there. But when you're playing against guys like that, you, you, you can't help but you stand next to them and you go, he's just flesh and blood, the same as me. He's about the same. He's, he was much uh, stronger build than me but you look at him and go I can have him here and uh, my asset was my pace and uh, he gave me about three free kicks for holding them holding my jumper I, as soon as the ball was in the area I thought right I'm going to go and get this because if he gets the chance to push me in the chest I'll, I'll know where I'm going to be I'll be on the flat in my back and and no doubt he'll be having a shot at goal so yep yeah, it was it was it is surreal looking at some of those players Royce Hart uh, Alex Jezelenko, I just go, my goodness, they were, they were very, very good players. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Harvey, uh, Larry Donahue's record in 1976 was 105 goals and 63 behind. So you were right in as much as his uh, accuracy, which is a pretty good ratio, two to one practically. So, yeah. Which is a goal, the full forward's goal, no doubt. Uh, he, tell he, us. About your brother, because I believe you had a reasonably talented footballing brother who headed off to Port Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, my older brother. He's uh, he's three years older than me. Um, he, he left Geelong as an eighteen-year-old and moved up to Melbourne, um, and uh, he played footy at Port Melbourne. So back in the VFA days, and uh, my brother's short-sighted, so he wore glasses. So if you if you uh, look backwards, you'll see um, a big lanky. Saul Ruckman for Port Melbourne, who played in glasses. That was my brother. Uh, he played cricket at South Melbourne. Um, so he played with the great Clive Lloyd um, there. And he, and he made the state squad for the cricket. Um, and probably at the time when he was nearly at his height, he, he was a school teacher and he got transferred to Hamilton. And he he was driving backwards and forwards for a while, but it was just, just too hard. He, he couldn't do it. So he dropped out. But, very talented, um, probably a, a more talented cricketer than he was football. And I have to tell you, Wes, he he has white line fever as a cricketer, not as a footballer, but as a cricketer. My goodness, um, you'd never cross him on the cricket field. He was uh, he was a quick bowler, and he had a mean end swinger. And uh, when he bowled it short, and you leant backwards, well, Mark would know this. You you, you lean backwards. And the damn things keep coming at you. And you're going, what do I do now? Oh, that's all, <laughs> all right. Your, all your you weight. Left, Harvey. I, leaned back. I did a lot. A lot of those went past me amidships. <laughs> yeah. Well, he was, uh, he, he'd always find an extra two or three yards when he put it in like that. So yeah, he, he, was a, he was very talented and um, had a great career, cricketer and, and footy at, at South Melbourne. He did come down and have a, a run at Geelong. Um, 
because South Melbourne were interested in him and Geelong wouldn't clear him to South Melbourne until he came and had a run at Geelong. So he came down, he was he was in the nets at Geelong Cricket Club in the footy gear, bowling the the balls and then jogged across and joined in the training at Geelong. So, you know, I said to him, that's not going to work. <laughs> now, Harvey, in addition to your pace and the number 21 on your back you also had another little trademark there that you had the hair everywhere you had the yeah. long blonde hair um quite a uh, at times a dashing sight and other times a, a quite a ferocious sight did any of any of the coaches uh, try to suggest a haircut or was it just part of your your uh, repertoire uh, you, you coaches didn't suggest those sort of things to you um no, it was one of those things, you, you, I was a student and all students did the same thing. You, you'd been all the way through secondary school and you'd listen to your mum and dad and they'd tell you to get a haircut and all that sort of stuff. And so back in those days, part of the deal was, well, you've got to look unruly and look like you're a student. So um, that's what the hair was all about. Um, so Nicky Turner and uh, and myself, there, was, there were a few guys who just say, no, no, we're not getting a haircut. We're just going to, it just, it is what it is. So uh yeah, it was it was interesting, and Bluey Hampshire's then wife Jan um, was a head hairdresser, so she was really keen, saying she'd always get you in the chair and say, "I'll just clean it up a little bit, and I'll, I'll you know I'll take it around your ears, and I promise it'll look okay." And I go, "No, just leave it." <laughs> so uh, yeah, she could never she could never get her way. So, Harvey, um, I had a chance to talk to Doug Gott, the former Collingwood player. Um, one stage and he was telling me about how he negotiated how much money he got from the footy club each year and how he was sitting outside the president's office one year and sitting next to Wayne Gordon and they were sort of asking each other how much they were going to ask for. Back in that, you know, here we, you know, these days we hear six figure and even touch on seven figure sums. Uh, journeyman um, player at Geelong in your era, how did, how did you go about getting your finance from the footy club in those days? Yeah, well, the, the, the first, uh, when I was first down there, I didn't make the, the list the first year. So I was a student um, and and used to get um, $60 a win and $40 a loss. That was it. All right. So you train, um, you play Saturday, you train Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, uh, Wednesday was usually whatever you like, and then Thursday. Um, sixty dollars win, forty dollars a loss. Yeah, so it was, uh, and it and it stayed like that for for quite some time. It wasn't until Rod Olson came along, and I'm I'm sure. Look, I was a local guy, and um and the the things you hear about local people being uh, treated differently to people that come in from out of town that was absolutely true. Um, so I just got whatever they were prepared to pay me, whereas I'm sure some of the others uh, got paid handsomely. For, for the same task and same job, yeah. On the Cats Whiskers, we are talking with 44-game Geelong Football Club player Harvey Davis from the uh, the late 70s. And uh, Harvey, I just wanted to uh, quiz you about uh, a player who who I always thought in my early years, formative years of following Geelong, was one of the uh, the cleanest and classiest footballers I'd seen for Geelong in my time. Um, Unfortunately, his name's not mentioned much in dispatches for Geelong these days for, for other reasons. But just tell us your recollections of, of uh, David Clark as a player. 
Yeah, uh, David Clark and I go back a, a long way. I went to primary school. David Clark went to um, Manifold Heights Primary School um, back in the day. So um, he and I used to wax in the in the footy at the at the school ground. Then he went off to the Geelong College, and I didn't see uh, Clarky again until um, we he surfaced at Geelong. We just didn't cross shoulders. He he didn't play local footy. He didn't do any of those things. An outstanding player an outstanding athlete so he had a huge engine absolutely huge engine um i shared a house with uh with with david at one stage and um graham linky and jack hawkins and uh we went through a pre-season david trained three times a day back in those times he, he and he trained hard and he ate like a a horse too. He ate everything he could get his hands on, but he trained so hard, and he, he was. Uh, you you could go to footy training, and he could barely kick the ball forty five meters. Put him fifty five out on Cadinia Park with the ball in his hand, and to go through post goal height. He was just he was inspired by what was going on around him, and he just lifted. Somebody did something. He could he he just mimic it, and you go. My goodness, how does he do that? So he was a he was a marvelous athlete, and uh, and he had a huge capacity to run, as all his uh, kids have. You know, his daughter was a, a very good runner, and both David Junior. and and um, his other son, I forgot his name. Um, he he they were very very good runners. So yeah, he's now a bike rider. I don't see a lot of him these days, but he he's spends a fair bit of time riding his bike these days. Yep. You mentioned Jack Hawkins there. For a time, the Geelong Football Club benefited enormously from that Southern Riverina region and a lot of fantastic footballers throughout the 70s and 80s actually came from that direction. Um, are they mates of yours still? Are you able to keep in contact with those blokes, many of whom have returned home to the farm and to their regional areas? No, back, back in our day, we we didn't spend a lot of time together you know like the guys do at the moment they're professional footballers and they spend i've worked in melbourne you come down you went to training you see them saturdays um we we might have club functions and things but um i don't see a lot of jack he comes down to all the all the footy um so i've caught up with him a couple of times on the way back um and i the rest of them I, we don't know i mean i played in a reserve grade premiership in 1975 and um we've had one reunion since uh, that time which is you know really sad but when colin frisch turned up i, I looked at him and i thought i got no idea did we play footy <laughs> he, he was just didn't have a hair on his head and when he was when he was down at geelong he had this really scruffy he was a he was a university student had a scruffy dark hair and rough and all that sort of thing and uh now he hasn't got a hair in his head and he's about uh or probably 40 kilos heavier as well so um yeah but we don't spend a lot of we just that hasn't happened yeah we just don't see much of it harvey um i'm glad you brought up that uh, 1975 reserve grade premiership team because it had some quite very good players some experienced players and a mixture of youth i think bluey hampshire was the captain uh, Ken Newland was playing, uh, Paul Sarah, uh, a very young Graham Landy. Um, what's your recollection of, of that day playing 
um, on grand final day, albeit in the reserves, but it still must have been a massive experience. Yeah, look, there was 100,000 people there in the last quarter. And, and although you don't notice that because you, you're sort of busting your boiler to make sure the game doesn't get out of control, but right at the end of the game, when there's five minutes to go and you go, we've got this, we've finally got a, a Premiership Cup, and you stop and you look around and you go, my goodness, the people that were there, it was... And MCG is just the most magnificent stadium to play football on. You, you run out of the centre, you feel like you can kick a goal running out of the centre. It's just it's just ideally proportioned. And um, back in, in my day, the wind used to swirl in the middle. So when you kick the ball out of the centre, you're kicking with the wind both ways. So when you did break out of the centre, you, you could kick it really deep into, into the forward line. It just felt like you could go. And, and of course, when there's 100,000 people there and they cheer, well, you, know, you know something's happening. <laughs> it, was, it was a great experience, absolutely fantastic experience. Uh, you said in the early 70s you got invited down to Geelong um, through a letter coming in the post. In the later 70s, when you left Geelong, what was the format then? How did that club go about it or you went about it when it was time to finish up? Um, I'd, I'd, um, I'd had a, a, an ankle reconstruction um, at the end of '77, uh, which, um, which gave me a fair bit of trouble. Well, well I did it in '76, um, halfway through the year, and I, I missed three or four games. Um, and uh, I tried to play through '77, and in the finish, I, I thought I, I can't do this. And um, I went up and saw John Grant, who was the specialist in those days and he just said look you, you need to get your your ankle done um halfway through 78 i was really struggling and uh, they just called me in and said um we can't pick we're not picking you in the seconds um you can go back to your local club or you can have a year off and back in at that time i was pretty well battered from injury I'd, I just had constant ankle injuries for, for quite some time and uh, yeah, it just wears you down in the finish and I, I was just in some respects I was happy to walk away and go my goodness I, you know I've had enough uh, and then of course all the pressure came from the local club who were you know going along nicely just come and play just come play a few games and so I went and I played it I played the second half of the season there but I was really struggling. I couldn't run after, you know, my probably my biggest asset being my pace and changing direction, all that sort of thing. I, suddenly, I couldn't do any of those things, and that made it really bit. So I finished up playing centre half back at, at Newtown in that Premiership side. Yeah, it was, a good side. It was a very good side too. Yes, um, Harvey. Just wondering if we could sort of maybe sweep forward to the the current day and and your assessment of, of how the cats are travelling and and maybe uh, let us in on uh, on who your favourite player is. That where's the uh, where's the hoops at the moment? Yeah, um, I think the most admired player has to be Joel Selwood. I, I mean, he, you know, from day one he's been outstanding and he's he's just a warrior. You look at him and go, oh, you'd love to play footy with him. You'd go to war with him. He, he he'd have your back. So I think he 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 is he sets the tone and he's been largely responsible for the culture that exists in the in the club now. It's about uh, sacrificing for others, making sure that the team gets across the line and doing exceptional things 
not not exceptional things in terms of kicking big goals or any of those sort of things, but doing exceptional things to make sure the team gets an advantage. And I think that's what sets him apart, you know, from say a, a Patrick Dangerfield, who's a completely different type of player. Patrick Dangerfield is is an explosive, hard player who, who I admire, but I, I just think Joel Selwood does it all. He's he's a very good player, very very good player. Well, Harvey, it's been fantastic having you on the Cats Whiskers and reminiscing about your career and some of the great coaches and and players that you've played with and against. And um, congratulations on a, on a terrific career. We'd all have loved to have played 44 games ourselves. One would have been enough, but uh, well done on your career and your contribution to footy and, and being on the program tonight. Yep. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed my time. Welcome back to the Cats Whiskers. I'm Wes Cusworth with Anthony Petkovic, Mark Brunger and Mark Browning. Let's look at the issues making headlines in the AFL. And there's not a bigger football story this week, probably not a bigger football story this season, perhaps even this decade. Tex Walker, the ban, six games, $20,000. Was it too heavy, heavy handed or too light or was it just right? Look, this is always a difficult one because if you argue that the, um, the ban is too heavy, uh, you get accused of being uh, condoning racism, which as a young man who grew up in a uh, Croatian-Australian family, I understand um, racism and I understand um, that the people can sometimes do things out of ignorance or through carelessness and they're not necessarily inherently racist. Um, in Tex Walker's case, though, I think he has been led to the slaughter yard on this. Um, the ban, the fine, and the numerous um, requirements for him to bear his soul and, and apologise profusely. Um, I understand that this, anyone can see that his apologies are, are heartfelt and that they are real. And I think that we should give him uh, the benefit of the doubt and I think that the ban is a little bit of overkill. One of these days through the media, we're going to have one of these situations where the perpetrator, we will find them hanging from a tree in their own backyard. And then what will the game do? We've got to make sure that the penalty matches the crime and we've got to make sure that we give acknowledgement to people who make heartfelt apologies and accept and acknowledge their wrongdoing. And there can be absolutely no doubt that Tex Walker is in that category. It's a, it's a good point you make, Anthony, there. Well, well made. Uh, my take on it was that, that yes, I look, I'm an unashamed Tex Walker fan. I have been for years. I've, I've liked the, the, the guy as a footballer. And as a bloke too, I think he, he seems pretty genuine. And when I saw that uh, apology last, uh, last, last night on the TV, my thought was, my first thought was, he seems genuine, but it just seems a little bit stage managed. And I know clubs are like that these days, that they need to have their ducks in a row and, and, and all that sort of stuff to, you know, show that uh, public, public front. But I think Patrick Dangerfield made the point best where he said, AFL footballers are coached within an inch of their life in terms of the protocols around racism and so on. And 
yes, we're all capable of things in the heat of the moment that we do. And I do agree that, you know, the punishment needs to befit the crime. And I think certainly um, from my perspective, if he had been sort of told that, you know, you, you're having the rest of the season off, you're getting the fine, I think that would have been sufficient for mine. Um, carrying it over into next year, I'm not sure what the value of that is. I, I think it would have been better to, you know, to have Tex undergo, you know, whatever reparatory work he needs to go through and also for the club to look after him because there's various stories going around about whether they keep him or whether they let him go at the at the end of the well, season. That's the point. They're now threatening his livelihood. Even though he's got a contract for next year, they're now actually threatening that he might not be part of the club. Mm. This, that is outrageous. That is absolutely outrageous. Um, and a, a huge uh, bridge too far in my book. You also need to remember too, though, Anthony, that the devastation that, that it's caused for people like Eddie Betts, who's you know, played all that football with Tex Walker, he's, he's devastated clearly too. It's a really unfortunate event. And I think, you know, if there's one thing in isolation, may have been seen a bit different, but we've just had this, we, we spoke about this issue a few weeks back. And it, and it won't go away. It, it's, it's just people keep going. I mean, we, you know, we had the Adam Goods issue a few weeks back. I mean, I've just been reading Michael Holding's book, Rise, and, you know, they're right. He's right. It's, they've had a history of yep. oppression and slavery and devastation. And so I hope Tex is okay, but... Um, but but text whatever the punishment is, I, I don't know, and I don't know the exact details. Uh, um, I hope he gets to play again. But you've got to remember what effect it has on the Indigenous players. I understand that. But Tex Walker is not responsible for uh, the past atrocities committed by others. He's only responsible for what he has done in this, what, we, what is clearly an isolated incident. We all do stupid things, and this is a massively stupid thing to have done. But there is an element of atonement that um, I think he has met the benchmark in terms of acknowledging his mistake. He's made no excuses. He's not tried to hide behind any cultural or upbringing misunderstandings. He's owned it from the moment this became public. And I think he is entitled to um, uh, an element of, of fairness in relation to what he has done. Yeah, I accept right. that. I just, it's not just about text as well. No. I think we have to remember that. There is, a bigger, there is a bigger problem in society, on social media in particular. There are still a lot of people who just don't understand and feel that they have a right to racially vilify others. Um, it's it's part of society. It does need to be dealt with, but it's going to be through education, I believe, not punishment. All right, lots to consider there. Well, let's be uh, perhaps even a little lighter with some of the topics to come because some of them are quite amusing, I must say. Uh, but Mark Browning, I know you want to tackle this one. Can a player's career be defined by one horrendous kick? Well, right at this very moment as we speak, where's I feel Jordan Clark's career? He's 30. 31st game, 32nd game, uh, his career now is defined by his choice of kick and 
execution of same uh, on uh, late in the game last Friday. And the thing is, Geelong lost by 90 points. If he had converted as he should have, we would have been three points down with about, what, three minutes to go. Mm. Um, I know Travis Varco is kind of half-remembered at Geelong for missing a shot in the preliminary final on the run. I've never seen the last quarter of that game. Uh, it's too hard to watch. Um, you can, and more so or less so, you other guys can tell me whether he's, Varco's remember more so for that or for the great goal he kicked in the last quarter in the 2011 grand final and the hand pass that he gave to Paul Chapman in the 2009 grand final. Or is Malcolm Blight remembered better for his 90-metre barrel talk that <laughs> won the game for North Melbourne over... Carlton back in the mid-70s or the fact that later in the season he had a shot for goal after the siren on a muddy Arden Street ground and lost the game. That's Mark's dilemma right now. If he kicks a winning goal after the siren, a la George Hall and Smith did five years ago or so, then maybe hopefully we'll remember him for that. But at the minute, it's for the miss. Mm. Well, what what would be what would be worse for Malcolm Blight when he ran into what he thought was the goal and kicked a point? Maybe <laughs> that's still one of my favourite. Well, I, I was always taught it's when something bad happens, it's not what you did, it's what you do next. Mm-hmm. And Jordan Clark needs to remember that. At some point, he'll get another opportunity, and it's what he'll do next that will define his career. I'm a great rap for him as a player. It was a horrendous kick, yes, indeed. Um, it happens. Uh, I hope he gets another opportunity. I think he's a terrific player and we need every young player at Geelong we can get our hands on and we'll be remembering that in two years' time. Oh, yeah. Um, I hate to borrow uh, words from uh, from other commentators, but uh, I borrow from BT here that uh, sometimes Geelong can be accused of a bit of payaka room with the football. And... Uh, I think Jordan may have been guilty of that on um, on Friday night because, as Mark quite rightly said, Geelong kicks that goal and they are right back in that contest. And from there, you could just feel the, the, the enthusiasm and the momentum just drain out of Geelong at that particular point in time. All right, let's keep scooting through the final few topics of our program for this week. Uh, David Teague, I know you want to tackle this, Mark Brunger. Is he a dead man walking? Oh, I've got absolutely no doubt that uh, David Teague is about to coach his last two games for the Carlton Football Club. It, it, it's sad, really, because, uh, you know, the, the blame doesn't entirely lay with the coach. The, the on-field leaders and the on-field players themselves need to need to take a good hard look at themselves as well. But, you know, to be, to be fair, he was an untried coach at that level. He came on the back of a previous untried coach at Carlton. And, and to be honest, Carlton don't need untried coaches. They actually need someone who knows how to shape and develop and mould a list into a competitive AFL team. And unfortunately, I don't think David Teague is that man. I think he's a nice guy. I think the players obviously like him, and that may be part of the problem. Um, but I just I can't see him surviving this this review, uh, and I don't think he'll be alone heading out the turnstiles of uh, Icon Park or MC Labor Park or whatever it is this week. Uh, uh, by season's end, I think he'll have a lot of company going through those turnstiles to uh, clear out their locker and, and move on to to greener pastures. Mm. Well, it's not the only problem at Carlton. The problem at Carlton is that they have an eight-man board that has 27,000 members on it. 
And when they get this experienced coach and they still don't make the eight, uh, then they'll maybe sit up and take notice and go, oh, maybe the problem's not the coaches we've had. Not the coach. No, if, if Carlton think the, the problem is the coach, if Carlton think the problem is the coach, they are in for more and more grief. And I, for one, am quite happy about that. I don't mind. I don't mind. <laughs> so uh, moving along to a question that I want to ask you, Mark Browning. Did the round of football that we've just witnessed uh, have a little bit too much Dom Sibley about it? That is a lot of time in the middle for not a lot on the scoreboard. So the, so the only game that rated on the uh, worth-watching Mark Browning metre was, I thought, the Essen and um, Western Bulldogs game. Again, it was so much football and not anything happening. Uh, yeah, it's like watching Dom Sibley bat the English opener for the people who don't know who Dom Sibley is. Who thank who you? Bat, who can bat? Who can bat a whole day for about fifteen runs and doesn't have any shots? So yeah, look, um, some of the games I watched the Carlton Gold Coast game. I know it's harder when there's no crowd, but there's too much football where nothing happens. And we saw that a lot of sides kicked eight goals or seven goals. You'd think, though, if you were looking at the scores from the older days, that was when there was a bog on the ground. Mm. And it, there's no bogs anymore. Uh, so some very disappointing games as a spectacle. And uh, I, you know, I hope, I don't know, again, the rules have been tweaked. But once the coaches decide we're, we're going to have pseudo rugby, um, that's it. You just, the ball doesn't go anywhere. I thought the, the West Coast Melbourne game, stages there, I thought they could have started a cricket match in the middle of the ground because the ball was never in the corridor. It was only it's a, like there's a magnet in the boundary line to the football. They just, players refused to centre the ball. I thought the, the middle of the ground was roped off. They were so reluctant to actually use it that uh, it was like uh, football training during cricket season. You're not allowed to actually use the middle of the ground because there's ropes around it. Did it, did it have a uh, Cadenia Park trust worker marching up and down the sidelines of the rope to make sure everyone stayed off? Quite likely. Now, the, uh, the Cats, we've suffered a few injuries heading towards finals. That's a major cause for concern for uh, those of us that are barrack for the hoops, of course, which we all do. Mm, yeah, it was, uh, it was like a, a, a litany of, of casualties on, on Friday night. And uh, thankfully, there are some troops coming back. I mean, uh, uh, Jeremy's uh, Jez is on his way back. Uh, Mitch Duncan... It was interesting that that, that uh, on Friday night, Chris Scott sort of hedged his bets a little bit in his press conference, but then when pressed said, you know, he'll be right to go for the first final. So at least that's that's something. But I, I wasn't sold by that by that comment. But, um, you know, obviously we've got Zach Tui, who's got an injury concern as well now. And there's been a few others that have been on the sidelines for a few weeks. And going into finals, boys, that is not a time to be getting injuries. No, uh, well, Zach Tui, that's his first ever hamstring. So that would have been a shock to him. He's never never felt a hamstring before. And so uh, that was interesting. Um, Gary Rowan now will be out for the season. Um, I know he might be available to play, but Rowan's um, injury status, if he's not uh, fully confident in his body, he he can't play well anyway. So that's, that's a real concern to me because um, he's a player Geelong rely on very, very heavily. Um, but uh, yeah, they've got some troops coming back, so hopefully uh, they'll get a bit of a balance, a bit of balance that side, because there were there were a, a few in that side on on Friday night who you don't really think are in our best twenty-two. Does, uh, does that? 
Does Zach Guthrie get another game on the back of that? Well, not not if Tom Atkins is fit. So um, that would be a Zach Guthrie is a good player to have with Tom Atkins unavailable. But when but if there's a choice between the two, um, Tom Atkins definitely plays ahead of uh, Zach Guthrie. They've resolved the uh, the four players to go into the three pronged forward line. Uh, the, the three guys up forward, obviously, with with Rowan out. So that's maybe that solves some embarrassing embarrassment at the selection table come the finals. It's hard to imagine Hawkins, Radigalia, and Cameron being in the same forward line. Radigalia, I think, would play well. It's between he and Stanley as to who plays in the ruck. I imagine um, Rowan is the is the difference or enables them to play Hawkins and Cameron. Um, in the same forward line. Um, yeah, Geelong might be a bit unbalanced if Rowan is unfit or unavailable. Mm. And uh, just finally, guys, retirements for a number of uh, high-quality players from other clubs. Yeah, some uh, some big names announced their retirement this week. Uh, probably top of the list is uh, Mark Murphy, the uh, former Carlton captain. Uh, he'll play his 300th and final game for Carlton this week. Uh, he's been a marvellous servant of the club. He could have got a bucket load more money and, and potentially premierships had he uh, tried himself on the open market, but he stayed loyal to the uh, to the club. And uh, he, he'll go down as one of the greats. I think he now becomes one of only six or seven Carlton players to break the 300-game mark, and he's in some very high company there. Uh, Stephen Hill, who's been a great servant for the Fremantle Football Club over the years. He's uh, been a fantastic player. Enjoyed watching him. One of those players I... I really enjoyed watching, even though he wasn't a Geelong player. I thought he was—he uh, got every little bit he could out of his uh, career. And the other one is uh, Tom Rockcliffe, the former Brisbane and Port Adelaide player. It's a sad story, boys. He, he's been fighting uh, blood clots and uh, D, uh, DVT for for a year or so now in his legs, and has just got to the point where he he can't go around anymore. Well, that wraps our program for this week. The Cat's Whiskers is accessible on a range of podcast platforms, along with being heard throughout Perth on Spot FM 91.3. On behalf of the team, Anthony Petkovic, Mark Brunger, Mark Browning, I'm Wes Cusworth saying thanks for tuning in and we hope you can join us again next week. Oh, oh, oh.